Well, thank you, Carrie, for your ministry among us, and uh, we pray the Lord will lead and guide us uh, as we consider uh, you for the role of deacon in the church. If any of you who are members of the church have any questions or commendations regarding uh, Carrie, please let us know. Uh, by September the 9th, uh, we want to give you a few weeks to respond, so uh, please do. Uh, and certainly do send along commendations as well. Let's, let's bow for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, and thank you, Lord, for, first of all, the opportunity to worship you through our giving, through the tithe, and offering this, this means of grace and this opportunity for generosity that you have established within the church uh, we are grateful, Lord. We are indeed cheerful givers because you have filled our hearts with joy. And Father, as we pray, we pray for the blessing on the offering and on those who give it. And we pray uh, that those gifts might be effective in serving and caring for our community. Lord, as we think of our community, we think of these last few days and the the strong storms that made their way through our area. We think of those facing storm and flood damage among us and pray uh, for the restoration of their homes and uh, their life back to normal, that you would provide for every need for them. Father, we think of those in our community and far beyond our community that in the midst of pandemic and in the midst of unrest throughout our society are in fear, in anger, in sadness, in confusion. I pray, Lord, that a spirit of peace and of grace would rest upon your people and that, Father, you would work in ways that, that do establish justice and establish mercy, Lord, that there might be an outpouring of your Spirit on your church here and abroad for the glory of Christ, who alone is worthy. And Father, to that end, we pray for churches in our community. We pray for Drexel Hill Church and Brandon Hicks ministering faithful, faithfully for you. We pray for Crossroads Community Church and our brother Michael Quillen and pray, Lord, that you would Continue to establish and build that church in Upper Darby. Lord, we pray for Beulah Tabernacle and our dear friends there and uh, for our brother uh, Keith Thomas who faithfully leads the church there. We pray for Stephen Bomberger and Manoa Community Church, Lord, that you would build that church strong and deep in the grace of God and in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for Fresh Anointing Christian Center and our brother Clarence Walker and Jayola, Lord, as they have faithfully served uh, downtown for, for many years. I pray for your safety and protection and grace and healing power in their lives. Father, there are so many we could pray for. We know that you see them all and you walk among those churches that are faithful and we pray that as you walk among them, you will speak grace and truth and love and holiness and faithfulness into each heart. 
And Lord, as we open up Your Word now, may it be that our hearts will be opened to receive Your Word, to hear Your voice, and to be changed. Oh Lord, be with us in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, as we, as we open up God's Word this afternoon, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to read verses 26 through 29, a brief text in which Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. As His death is drawing near, He pauses in the midst of a meal with His disciples And he says, beginning in verse 26 of Matthew 26, it says, Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." You can tell what matters most to people by what they say and what they do in their last days of life, in particular when they know that their last day is soon arriving. I just had the pleasure of reading the very long biography of Alexander Hamilton, actually for the second time, enjoyed it more the second time than the first time. What a complex, what a brilliant, what a confused, what a heroic, what a tragic, what a devoted, and what an unfaithful, and what we have hoped to We have reason to hope what a converted man he was. As many of you would know, he met an untimely death by being on the wrong end of a duel with Aaron Burr, in which the evidence suggests he seemed to intentionally not shoot his opponent. I was affected by his actions in the last days leading into his death, as he sensed that this might well be his end because he had made up his mind not to shoot Mr. Burr. He knew that his end was near. In those last days, just within the week before his death, Mr. Hamilton wrote out a speech that he gave to one of his sons, that he wanted his son to, to read and to process. And in that speech, Mr. Hamilton urged that people be very discreet and wise in how they speak about others, something that Alexander Hamilton was not good at at all. But in his dying days, he wanted to make sure that his son learned this lesson from his life. 
We notice, too, that the morning that Alexander Hamilton died, he wrote and left behind a song that was written especially for his wife. And then, just before he died, he pleaded for the opportunity to observe communion. Among his very last words were these, quote, I am a sinner. I look to God's mercy. A pastor who was present said to him, quote, Christ's blood can wash away your sins. To which Mr. Hamilton responded, I have a tender reliance upon the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a tender reliance upon the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his dying days and in his dying hours and minutes, Mr. Hamilton wanted to make sure that his son learned how not to follow his example. He wanted to make sure that his wife felt and knew his love and therefore wrote a love song composed just for her. And he wanted to make sure that his soul was right with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's very moving, very affecting to read. You can discern what is important to a person by what he or she makes sure to do or say when they know that their death is near. So with that in mind, does Jesus give us any indicators of what was important to Him as He was passing from this world? I think He does. On the night Jesus was betrayed over to His death, Jesus made sure to take the time to institute a ceremony, a spiritual ritual that He wanted us to continue celebrating and observing until He returns. And then just a little while longer, in addition to that ceremony being instituted by our Lord, some of the very last words of Christ before He died are in Matthew 28 where He commands that we go into all the nations and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So before Jesus dies and before He departs, He makes sure to institute two sacraments or two ordinances for the church that were meant to be a regular part of our life together as His church before He left us. Something that was very important to Him was handed on to us. Baptism to show those who by faith have become a part of the church and Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper to be consistently shared as a meal by believers to show forth His death and to display our unity in 
him and his death as often as we do it. These two ordinances are not Jesus' dying wishes. They are his dying commands. And you or I may not be a ritual or a ceremony type person. We may not feel like we get into that very much, but Jesus says that these two rituals, these two ceremonies, are of serious importance for us. We are not given to man-made ceremonies and man-made traditions, but Jesus, our Lord, King Jesus, goes out of His way to ordain these ceremonies for us, to do something in us and to us, in the experience of them. So the question is, why are these so important? Or another way of asking that question is, what were these ordinances, and particularly this afternoon, what is the communion meal meant to do for us? What's it meant to do in us? What's it meant to do to us? Well, we saw last week, two answers to that question. Communion is meant to rekindle our gratitude. Jesus gave thanks when he took the cup. And how much more should we give thanks every time we observe the communion meal? Why? Because he gave his body for us and he poured out his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Communion is a Thanksgiving meal, the ultimate, the most sublime, the most sacred Thanksgiving meal you and I will ever partake of this side of heaven. And the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ is our Passover and has been sacrificed for us. Let us then celebrate the festival. Let us celebrate the festival of Christ dying for us as our Passover land. Let us celebrate the festival with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let us celebrate the festival. I love what John Stott writes. He writes, the whole life of the Christian community, the whole life of the Christian community should be conceived as a festival in which with love, joy, and boldness, we celebrate what God has done for us through Christ. That, I trust, would receive a loud amen from God's people. The whole life of the Christian community should be conceived as a festival in which with love, joy, and boldness we celebrate what God has done for us through Christ. Communion is meant to rekindle that celebration of gratitude. And then we saw last week communion is meant to reinforce our unity. It's meant to be a shared, gathered together meal in which we are reminded that we are one at the foot of the cross. Communion and the communion table are places, is a place where all opinions and 
quarrels and politics and other causes and other preferences and other matters need to be left at the door when believers come together in worship around the table. Those things are not here and not now. Communion, communion is for those who know, who know that at bottom they are sinners saved by grace alone who are united to other sinners who are equally saved by grace alone through the blood and the body and the righteousness of Christ. Communion unites us and, and, and tears away all the other things that divides us and says, come here to the table. and Share this meal together. For we are one body. We are the body of Christ. Communion... Communion rekindles our gratitude and reinforces our unity. Now let me quickly add three other effects that communion is meant to have in our lives. First, communion is meant to renew our covenant, to renew our covenant. In Matthew 26 and verse 28, Jesus says this, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant. My blood that seals the covenant between me and you. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup is a remembrance of Christ Jesus who poured out His blood in covenantal love for us. This, this is a concept that we're not as familiar with as I think we need to be and should be and should want to be. The idea of covenant has kind of fallen into uh, disuse in many places, in part because we live in a culture and in a society where even just telling the truth has fallen into disuse, uh, into disuse and, and covenant-keeping and promise-keeping, pledging, and then keeping our pledges is, is something people aren't very good at. But covenant and covenant keeping is at the heart of what it means to really come to faith in Christ. It is similar to a marriage covenant, a marriage vow where there is a pledge till death do us part. There is a covenant that exists between Christ and all of us who love Him. All of us who truly believe in Him. It is a mutual bond of promised, everlasting devotion that is shared between the Son of God and all those who find their forgiveness and find their hope in Him. It is a consecrated, devoted relationship in which we pledge our allegiance and love to Christ forever and He pledges His love and His care forever is an understanding of faith that far too few seem to grasp. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to trust in Christ in a genuine and saving way? 
uh, we could say that it is very much more a marriage covenant than it is going steady or going on a date. To trust in Jesus in a saving way is to pledge devotion to Him. It is to covenant, to belong to Him. That's why in the, in the baptismal ceremony and service, what do we read in Matthew 28? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is covenant language. It's, it's saying in baptism, from this point on, I am identified with the name and the person of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are my God. And I am one of His people. True saving faith is that. It's a covenantal commitment. Not a covenant until death do us part, but until death do us unite and reunite with Christ. And so communion. Communion is a covenant renewal time. It's a reminder to us that saving faith is not just a mental assent to certain truths. It's not just a, a legal transaction to take care of the problem of our sins. No, it is a solemn, sacred pledge of allegiance and devotion to Christ. It's a remembrance of His covenant life, love, for us sealed with His own blood. And it's a reminder that we have made a covenant with Him. And so every time we eat and drink together, we are reminded we have a Savior who loves us with an everlasting love. And He has sealed a covenant of affection and love for us with His blood. We belong to Him. And He belongs to us. Communion is a covenant renewal. And then next, communion is meant to replenish our spirit. To replenish our spirit. Not just to renew our covenant, but to replenish our spirit. So what does Jesus say in Matthew 26? He says, take and eat. Take and drink. There's, there's a reason that communion involves food and drink. And there's a reason that Jesus says, eat it and drink it. He doesn't just say, look at it. As, as food replenishes the body, communion, when it, when it is received with faith, replenishes the Spirit. It is spiritual nourishment through fellowship with Christ, which is a part of what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or a communion in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation or a communion in the body? Of Christ. When we partake of the bread and partake of the cup, we are communing with Christ. Christ is drawing near to us by His Spirit and is nourishing us in our 
Spirit. Now, we, we need to be clear here just by way of uh, a sidebar, so to speak, that, that we need to be, make, uh, to be clear that we don't make a common error uh, that has been made when looking at Jesus' words, this is my body and this is my blood. As many would know, there are those who take that literally and say that the cup, the wine, or the juice, and the bread actually turn into the actual blood and actual body of Christ. It's called transubstantiation. The, the substance changes so that people in partaking of communion are actually eating the flesh of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. And in doing this, at least as it is taught in the Roman Catholic Church, there is the claim that Christ is being re-sacrificed in every communion meal, in every Mass. But, brothers and sisters, we might humbly suggest and say that that is a mistake both in ter terms of interpretation and in terms of theology. It is, it is wrongfully interpreting what Jesus clearly means to be figurative in a very literal sense. That was something that actually happened many times in Jesus' ministry. The, his contemporary, contemporaries often got confused because he would talk in very graphic language about things, in very, very stark language, and they, they'd just be confused. So in John chapter 2, for example, Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. And the people that heard him said, what's he going to do? Tear down the temple and then, and then rebuild it? And in three days, it took however many years uh, for it to be built the first time. And John goes on to say he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body that would be in the grave. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And you'll remember Nicodemus took that very literally. Can I, in fact, go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? No, Nicodemus, don't take it literally. That was meant figuratively. Spiritually, you need to be born again. In John chapter 4, Jesus tells the woman from Samaria at the well that he was the living water and that if she drank of his water, she would never thirst again. And the woman says to him, give me some of that water so I don't ever have to be thirsty or come to this well again. In John chapter 6, Jesus says that we need to eat his flesh. And the people that heard him uh, were pretty upset about that. It sounded like cannibalism, but he wasn't saying, eat my flesh or eat my body literally. He was saying, you need to be nourished by me. And on and on we have these examples. This was not meant to be taken literally. And it's important for this reason. Because Jesus died once for all. Jesus does not have to be sacrificed over and over and over again. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He, Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this, what? Offer sacrifice for sin once for all when he offered up himself. In Hebrews 10, 
in verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, but, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here here is the truth about the death of Jesus Christ. It was so powerful. It was so effective in atoning for our sins. It was so effective in accomplishing our redemption and securing our forgiveness of sins that it only needed to happen once. Jesus paid it all, and He didn't pay it in installments. He paid it all, and it only took one payment. His death on the cross once and for all time. Oh, what a Savior we have. Oh, what a Redeemer we have. Oh, what a Redeemer this is who by His blood and by His body could offer Himself one time, just one time, to cover and atone for all the sins of all of His people for all of time. Oh, what precious blood that is. Oh, what a sacrifice that is. Oh, what a Savior He is. Communion. Communion. While it is not a literal turning of bread into flesh or wine into blood, it is a very real nourishment to the soul. It is a very real nourishment to the Christian heart. As a believer, by faith, receives the cup and receives the bread. He, she, by faith, in a new way, in a fresh way, in a replenishing way, receives grace and communion and fellowship and nourishment from Christ. And so, let us anticipate this meal with fresh anticipation, with stronger eagerness. And let us allow this teaching to affect us when we hear the familiar words of Revelation 3 and verse 20, where Jesus says to the church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he's here talking to the church. He's here talking to Risen Hope Church. He's talking to every gospel-preaching, faithful church. He says, if anyone, if any church hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Here the Lord Jesus invites us to invite Him in for communion and fellowship. Dining with Christ. Fresh nourishment for the soul. The communion meal is meant to accomplish many things. Among them, 
is just this, a reminder of what Christ has done for us to replenish our hearts. And then finally, communion is meant to revive our hope. To revive our hope. If your hope is weakening, if your anticipation for the future is dimming, if your outlook on the future has grown grim and hard and dark, you you need to hear this. Matthew 26 and verse 29, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, as you partake of this, realize the day is coming when hope will be fulfilled, when hope will be realized, and I will drink it again with you in my Father's kingdom. I am going to my death now, but I will be raised from the dead, and I will reign in the days coming. The day is coming when we're going to drink of the vine together, we're going to eat bread together, we're going to feast together forever. 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 26 says, Often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You proclaim His death past until He comes future. The Lord's Supper is a visible, is a visible reminder that helps us look back to the death of Jesus, and look ahead to the return of Jesus. It is a ceremony that points us back and points us forward. We, we have such things in our life and in our relationships. As, as we were singing earlier, and we came to the hymn, Because He Lives, my mind and heart went back in time and ahead in time at the same time. For, as I think I've mentioned before, that hymn was my mother's favorite hymn. I cannot, I cannot hear that hymn. I cannot sing that hymn without hearing my mother's voice singing that hymn. It, it points me back in time but in pointing me back to remember mom, it points me ahead to the day when I will see mom again. The hymn, the song, takes me back and lifts me forward. Jesus says, as oft as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim my death until I come. You look back and you look ahead. In this light, every communion meal, every communion meal is an appetizer or a symbolic, simple first course for heaven. You know the text, many of you, in Revelation 19 and verse 6. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride, that's you and me, believer, that's you and me, church, His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, write this down. 2,000 years, we're reading what was written down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the ultimate festival. This is the ultimate feast. This is the, the ultimate celebration where with Jesus, in, that's the ultimate in-person worship and fellowship experience where with Jesus in person, all of us in one place sit at one table to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb where we as the bride of Christ and Jesus, our dearly beloved Savior and Lord and husband of our souls, where we are brought together visibly, really, physically, and forever. Forever. There is our hope. There and there alone is our hope. There, there is no hope for a much better world or a much kinder world. There will always be more evil to replace the last evil. But there is hope. And it is a certain hope for a perfect world, another world, a beautiful world, a world of love. And Jesus says, I want you to remember, eat and drink to remember my death. But as you're eating and as you're drinking, look forward and look ahead. For dawn, for daybreak, for morning is coming. And you're going to see me face to face. And I'm going to make everything new. Brand new. Perfectly new. Never to be broken or marred or scarred again. Holy Communion. It's meant to rekindle our gratitude. It's meant to reinforce our unity. It's meant to renew our covenant. It's meant to replenish our spirits. And it's meant to revive our hope. And so let us as a church, let us be a people who delight in these holy sacraments. Let us be a people who cannot wait to get together to eat and drink in remembrance of him and anticipation of his coming. We are going to, uh, again, a week from now, we are going to have communion again in the parking lot as we did this past Sunday. Uh, to our great delight, we hope even more will come. Physically safe, careful, 
distant and all the rest, and yet as many of us as possible located in one place uh, to break bread and drink the cup together. Can I say, as I close, brothers and sisters in Christ, make sure that as the communion meal comes, as it does a couple of times a month, that you have prepared your heart to anticipate the sweetness, the beauty, the sacredness of the moment. And let us all, as we come now to the close of our worship, let us all, let's do what Jesus and the disciples did in verse 30, where it says they sang a hymn. They sang a hymn and went on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where the agonies of our Savior began and didn't end until Easter morning. Let us sing together. And let us sing of Christ, who alone is our rock of safety, our rock of ages cleft for us. Let's sing together.